Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Look to the Lord and Not to Man. A mistake that we often make looking to man instead of looking to God. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, we're still down in the kingdom of Judah uh, as we're learning of the ups and downs of the nation of Israel. Uh, and the southern kingdom of Judah, nation of Israel, what God is doing among the divided kingdom. And one of the things we're learning when we see mostly bad kings and a few good kings is the significance of leadership. Now there's a saying in the world that says everything rises or falls on leadership. That is a statement that has some truth to it. Because leadership does make a difference. If there's good leadership, then you have a a better propensity to go in the right direction. And bad leadership, you have a propensity of people wanting to follow their own. You know, when there were, like in the book of Judges, when there were no kings there, there was no leadership. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so good leadership, yes. Bad leadership, not so much. However, I don't think the phrase everything rises or falls on leadership because according to the Bible... God can overrule even the worst of leaders or the best of leaders to accomplish his purposes and his sovereign will. So although leadership makes a difference, and those of you that have been trusted with spiritual leadership, which, by the way, is every single spiritual born-again believer has a place of leadership in someone's life, including just leading yourself on the way, uh, in the path that you're supposed to go to, but the people that you interact with Like, we all have a place of spiritual leadership. It doesn't just have to be in a church or among believers. Leadership makes a difference. And what God has been entrusted to us, we want to be faithful with. Now, on the topic of leadership, before we get into the text, I I think it's important that we pause and review some statistics as it relates to pastors and leaders in the church. Uh, I want to speak to you for a moment about pastors. Uh, and even, even right before I came uh, into the pulpit, um, earlier today, I was opening up my email and a pastor in town here has just resigned. Uh, and then a couple weeks ago, there was a pastor here in town that committed suicide, a senior pastor. Uh, we want to pray for the Paulser family as they grieve the loss of their husband, uh, their dad, and of course the church losing their pastor. Like spiritual leadership, whatever level you have, whether you're a pastor that draws a salary from a church, an assistant pastor, a lay pastor, a spiritual leader, the spiritual warfare that you've entered into is real. Now, it's different, of course, for different people, but it's a real battle. And if we're not in the spirit, then we will find ourselves overcome by the flesh and the world and the devil. So I want to talk to you about some statistics Uh, surrounding pastors. I don't want you to think at all, I mean, forgive me if it sounds self-serving. It's not self-serving at all, I assure you. But I want you to understand, and it'll help you in your prayer life, 
not just for the pastors of this church and the lay leaders, but for the pastors in general. The warfare that goes on to do the work of the ministry. Perhaps you don't today understand or value the significance of your pastoral team or the men that are serving, their wives, their kids, the pastors that aren't even on staff here, that don't draw a salary but serve in an oversight capacity, tent making, serving the men and women that are planting churches, that are going into the trenches. And as a friend of mine describes, and, and I find this, this has been described in many different places, but they describe planting the church as plowing concrete and how hard it is and how difficult it is. And it was difficult when we moved here almost 20 years ago. Uh, and it's worse now. It's much more difficult. Now, don't be, mis- you know, don't be fooled by new churches that pop up in town and seem to grow instantly and immediately. Uh, because there are a few, and, and there are certain techniques that you can do. There's certain systems you can run, that, that it's easy to attract a, tr- a crowd. The reality is, is are you preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible and serving the people? Because you might be in a community, and I've been around here long enough and been in this side of town. I'm not so much on the other side of town, but I'm certainly on this east side of town where I've seen churches come and go. I've met pastors that come and go, and I've also seen churches that come and, and they, they grow so fast, but, but really don't put their roots down. And then I've also seen these churches that have just steadied on and weathered through. And of course, in our fellowship family of Calvary Chapel, I've seen a lot of men that have just plowed the ground here. And you know, when you're serving in a capacity, whether it's church planting, uh, which is certainly something on my heart, or you've begun a new ministry uh, within the church that you serve, or you have a heart to reach your community in some way, or do something at work in the name of Jesus, or, or just made that decision to lead your family in the way that you know you should go in the ways of God, it won't come easy. And it's in those times of difficulty that you might wanna give up. And you might want to throw in the towel. And you begin to second guess yourself. Am I even doing what God's called me to do? Am I doing it right? And you have to learn to look to God and not to man in the midst of the warfare and the resistance. You know, every time I hear a a report back of some ministry and some difficulty, the response in, in, in one way or another is, what did you expect? You're moving into the kingdom of darkness. I was speaking with one of the pastors earlier and and thinking about the ministry that's going into right where Satan's throne is, where he thinks he owns the place. I mean, I think he, I think that in the world today, he thinks he owns all of this. He's the, he, he, he's taken, I think, you know, in his mind, he's the prince of the power of the air. So like he owns it all and he thinks he's getting away with it. But the Bible says that the devil knows he only has a short time. So when you're backed into a corner, you start getting crazy and wild. And so the enemy in these last days is getting crazy and wild. He's doing it to pastors. He's doing it to pastors' wives, to pastors' kids and grandkids. He's doing it to the lay leaders, uh, to those that have stood before and are working full-time and also serving God with their gifts and talents because that's where God wants them. He's doing it to Christian school teachers. He's doing it to, to teachers that treat, teach in Christian school. I mean, the warfare is hard. And I want you as a church to be reminded that those that serve, and and let me just speak for this church because I can speak for this church uh, from my own observation, my own experience. The people that serve in this church, they do it because they sense a calling from God. We're not professionals. 
we don't approach ministry as a professional, like as a, as a, as a vocation where, you know, that the idea of, well, you know, I can be a plumber and, and I can be a lawyer or I can be a pastor. I think I'll choose pastor. No, God has placed us here by the will of God. And then, of course, some people are plumbers and ministering the gospel. And some people are driving and ministering the gospel. And the warfare is intense. So consider some of the statistics as it relates to pastors and those that study these things. I, I put together numbers from, Bar- from the Barna Research Group also from an organization known as Pastoral Care, and also an organization of the Fuller Institute. So together, these three, these, three, there's, these are a few years old, um, but relevant nonetheless. And who knows what the recent numbers are, but listen to this. Just let it soak in. 90% of pastors say that they work between 55 and 70 hours a week. 80% of pastors say that pastoral work has negatively impacted their family. Many pastors' kids today don't go to church because of how the congregation treated their parents and how they were treated as kids. 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 50% have considered leaving the ministry in the last few months. 50% of ministers started out right now will not last five years. 10% will end up retiring in the ministry. 90% will leave the ministry before they retire and do something else. 66% of church members expect a minister and their family to live at a higher moral standard than themselves. The profession pastor is near the bottom of a survey of the most respected professions just above car salesmen. Now, I didn't say anything about any car salesman here, but this is just the research. Over 4,000 churches closed in America last year, and 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month last year. And let me say that there is another magnetism about pastoral ministry is that everyone thinks they can be hypercritical with the pastor. That all their complaints and all their issues should just go to the, like, like the pastor of the church can solve every single problem in the world today, which we know that he can't. And I, with the, in, with the invention of social media, you know, it used to be in the day that gossip used to be verbal. And there would be a phone call, you know, in the day there used to be a, a phone tree of prayer requests. And unfortunately we had to jump in because it became more of a gossip line on the phone. Then it began of people sending and forwarding emails. Do you remember the day of forwarding emails? And they would forward all kinds of weird stuff and that's how gossip would be. Then it became the blogosphere where there would be those that could open up a website in the primitive days and just start criticizing everything in blogs. And blogs are still with us, of course, a little more sophisticated these days. Then there came, uh, and somewhere in there, actually probably if we put back the time a little bit, it used to be anonymous letters that came in the mail where you could just open the envelope, go right to the end of the page. If they didn't sign it, you could shred it. Then came email. And then there was the forward emails and then there were the people that set up fake accounts and send things in and just submarine a pastor. And, and, then, and then there became, then there was social media uh, in which the, uh, now you know, all of those things can work together. Social media where social media is just that place where everybody wants to share their opinion uh, and believers have caught into this system of the world where this sense of criticalness and nobody's ever happy and within a consumer mindset it's just overwhelming men and women weren't designed to carry that it's not new 
So don't think it's just new to our culture. Moses had great resistance from the people that he was called to lead. Not everybody wants to follow leadership. Not everybody wants to do the right thing. There's always resistance. There's always warfare. And even to you listening to me right now, you might think, well, you know, I don't like where it's on my right now. I don't like the decision. I don't like. And it's just really an opportunity for you to lay those needs before the Lord and ask God to give you wisdom on what to do. It could just be that God's revealing something in your heart. It could be that you have a, a nice conversation with the leadership of your church. It could be a combination of the both. But listen, pastors and spiritual leaders are under great stress. And it breaks my heart to read some of these things and even to experience some of them and to watch those that I serve alongside of experience them. As believers in Jesus Christ, just if you can for a moment set aside the fact that I am functioning in the gift of pastor-teacher right now and just listen to me as a fellow believer, just as a believer in Jesus Christ. We have a biblical ob obligation to love and serve and support the leaders that God has put in our lives. That is a biblical obligation, that we are to be a blessing to them and not a burden, that we're to help them, that we're to pray for our leaders, pray for our pastors, pray for the men that God and the women that God has put in our lives and their kids and the warfare. And we're not to be an added difficulty in their life by choice. And that doesn't mean that you don't bring difficulties in your life and you don't ask for biblical direction. That's not what I mean at all. I speak of the things that are fleshly in nature, that, that really, what can we do <clears throat> to help as as the scripture was, was shared with us tonight, I find it not any coincidence at all that Pastor JJ was led in leading and reminding us that we're to pray for everyone in authority, everyone. And I know that spans to, we almost always expand that to the sense of those in governmental authority, but also in our church authority. And, and I have to say though, and over the years here, here at Calvary, the numbers that are shared aren't necessarily that typical here, and I praise God for that, but we've had our fair share of pain in this church. We've had our fair share of difficulties. We've had our fair share of crises and heartache and, and difficulty among the pastoral team, among the lay leaders. We've had our fair share. And I don't want to see anybody quit the ministry because of the difficulty of the ministry, but rather to be strengthened. Let me show you something. Would you hold your places in Kings? We'll get there in a moment. Again, the context of our introduction today is the sake of we're learning about leadership in the Kings, good and bad leadership. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, would you? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is, and, and so some of you are like, well, I was thinking about filling out a ministry application, Ed, until you started speaking. <laughs> And I say, do it. It's the calling of God upon your life. We need more good men and women to serve Jesus Christ. We need you to stand up and fulfill the call of God upon your life. We need you to obey God when he has placed something upon your heart to do it and do it well in the strength of the Lord. And know full well that it will not come easy. Know full well that you're in a battle. But aren't you glad somebody was battling on your behalf? Aren't you glad somebody was serving God when you got saved? Somebody was praying for you? Somebody was showing up at your restaurant, at your place of business, somebody in your family? I'm, I'm glad that somebody was praying for me. I'm glad that my friend decided when he heard a Bible study, hey, invite somebody to church, that he called me. He invited himself over to my house, shared the gospel with my wife right there in our front room while I wanted nothing to do with them, and yet still lovingly said, Ed, I still think you should come check this church out. I'm glad that he fulfilled the call of God in his life. 
I'm glad that we get to enjoy it together. And it's a part of our testimony of how we grew up and all the things we were into and how God intervened. And yeah, it's been difficult and it's been hard uh, and it's been challenging, but God is glorified through the challenges. So notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of what? Of who? God and not us. It's about his work in our lives. We belong to him. <clears throat> the excellence is not the vessel, but it's God who uses us. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Modus, uh, verse 14, <clears throat> knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. You should have those words already marked in your Bible. If you don't, you should circle those words. The crisis you're in right now is working for you in the hands of God, not against you. It's working for you. God is working all things together for the good, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we don't look at the things that are seen but at the things which are not seen at the <clears throat> for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. One of the things you'll notice in the example of Paul's ministry is that he suffered. He suffered as a result of the call of God upon his life. He suffered as he sought to fulfill this call. He was told at his conversion, he was told how many things he would suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And in a culture, in a world that wants to do everything to avoid suffering, ministry is going to bring about difficulties in your life. But the right kind of difficulties, the ones that will work for you, where you're able to look like Paul and say, this is a light affliction compared to eternity. This is a light situation. And maybe some of you have tuned me out by now because you're like, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a leader. What does that have to do with me? Listen, don't tune, tune me out. This is, serving Jesus Christ is normal Christianity, church. It's not some step you kind of grow into. The moment you are saved, you begin to serve. Now, how you serve, whether it's good or bad, whether it's well or not, that's really dependent upon how much you're surrendering and abiding in Jesus Christ. But your born-again experience, you've been bought with a price. Your life now matters for all of eternity. And so don't tune me out because you could say these, some of these statistics are very similar for people that are just believers that choose not to press into the things of God. And because they don't press into the things of God, then they fall away and they find themselves quitting. And so if you're listening to me today, you're a church planner, you're a pastor, you're a spiritual leader, don't quit. Don't quit. Take the next breath. Take the next step. 
what you're doing matters. Believer in Jesus Christ, you're ready to throw in the towel. You don't think Christianity is all you thought it was going to be. That's only because you really haven't had a real experience with Jesus Christ yet. Don't quit. It's not religion that you've been called to, some activity and just go through some motions. And, you know, you thought if you read your Bible and you talked to God, things would just get so much better. It's not about your outward activity. It's about what's happening on the inside of your life. It's the inward manifestation and presence of Jesus Christ. That's where strength comes from where joy comes from, where all the sufficient grace of God is available by faith. God, he wants to use you, and he will use you. And in, as you lead and as you become an example in other people's lives, listen, you're either going to be a good example or you're going to be a not-so-good example. So let's choose to press in to the things of God. With all that in mind, now let's come to another king here in 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, it says, in the 17th year of Pekah, Pekah, the son of Ramallah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, <clears throat> began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, indeed he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord has cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, under every green tree. Then Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At the same time, Rezan, king of Syria, captured Eloth for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. Then the Edomites went to Eloth and dwell there to this day. So King Ahaz is another wicked king. Up to the point in history in Judah, he was the most, up to this point, he was the most wicked king up to this time. He chose to follow in the ways of the kings of Israel. Same sad, sinful story, different man. It was during the reign of Ahaz that Isaiah the prophet really came to be active. He, and, and here, with, what Ahaz did is he introduced pagan worship in a graphic way like no other king. He made his sons passed through the fire. He made his sons pass through the fire. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, worshiping Molech was a wicked, difficult thing to watch. Because Molech was, many of the statues of Molech was just a, a statue upright with arms outstretched like this. And it was hollow. And they would fill this hollow uh, statue with coals and different things and heat it up till it was red hot. So you'd have a red hot <clears throat> statue with arms outstretched. And families that wanted favor from God in the area of financial favor would worship Molech with their arms outstretched and place their children on the hot arms of the statue Molech. And oftentimes they would sacrifice babies, but on occasion they would sacrifice small children for the sake of gaining something from the false gods, little g. When it says he made his children pass through the fire, it was an abomination. It shouldn't have been named among the kings of God. It shouldn't have been named among the people of God. And so Ahaz brings that from his own family. He burned incense on verse 4 on all the high places, he just worshiped the way he wanted to worship, wherever he wanted to worship. And then in verse 5, the king of Syria comes 
and attacks Jerusalem. But Ahaz is able to hold them back. Verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. Don't let that just pass. The king is asking a man, hey, I'm your son and I'm in trouble and I'm being attacked. Will you come and save me? Verse 8, Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria heeded him for the kings of Assyria went up against Damascus, took it, carried its people captive to cure and called it resin. So Ahaz in all of his strength decides to submit himself to the kingdom and the king of Assyria. And it's a dumb move. He chooses not to align himself with Israel He chooses not to call out to the name of the Lord, but instead he chooses the wicked king and he trusts more in Assyria who will shortly come and take him captive and take his his country captive than he trusts in the Lord. And I wonder, and I ask the question, just so you, the Holy Spirit might be using in your life, but I wonder what or who you're trusting in today other than God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God and the resources of God. Who is it or what is it that you turn to in times of great crisis or in times of great attack? With Ahaz, we'll learn that God sends him Isaiah to tell him that God delivers. He sends a messenger. Remember when the kings aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and the priests aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing in the nation, what does God do but he raises up a prophet Someone that's going to speak the truth into an environment where the truth isn't being spoken or, or heeded. And so we learn in Chronicles that Isaiah is sent as a messenger that God delivers. But his, his lack of faith, Ahaz's lack of faith is so bad. Notice in verse 8, he, he's so far from God that, that we can't miss. Not only is he asking, come save me from a wicked, godless, pagan king. But in verse 8, he takes of the silver and gold. Where was it found? in the house of the Lord. So if the silver or gold is in the house of the Lord, then who do you think it belongs to? It belongs to the Lord. The resources, the tithes and offerings. When you give the tithes and offerings here in this church, they don't belong to Calvary Chapel or to the leadership or the board of elders there. They belong to the Lord. You're giving unto God. You, you give your tithes and offerings to God and trusting the leadership in your, in your life to use them in a way that will honor Him. Which means, by the way, that maybe previously in your relationship with God, you might have supported someone that wasn't treat. you know, you were in a place in your life where you were in a church that really didn't use those resources or they got, you know, somehow ripped off or misused them and you kind of feel like, man, why did I give to that church? You didn't. You gave to the Lord and God honored that giving to the Lord. He'll deal with the leaders and he'll deal with that church and he'll deal with anyone that mismanages money. He'll deal with them in, in a way that will honor him. So when you give, you give unto the Lord, which also means on the back end, when you don't give, you are taking from the Lord. Because the Bible says, what do we have that we haven't first been given? Like how we came into this world, nothing. So everything in our lives is from God. And so our relationship is with him through the ministry that he has set up. And so even if you've been taken advantage of or you've been hurt in the past, listen, 
all of that was given to the Lord. You just trust God to sort it out and keep your eyes on him and keep doing what God's called you to do and keep continuing to give of your tithes and offerings unto the Lord, Can, to continue to have a generous heart in our city. To, whether it's something so small by giving a good tip in the name of Jesus Christ, or it's something that really should be coming out right out of the top. It is not okay to hold back your tithe and offering for the Lord. It's not okay. It's not biblical. It's sinful. And you take your life into your own hands when you do that. You're like, man, you know, every, day, every, every area of my life is taken care of. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a person that doesn't give your tithes and offerings, you give more to the United States government than you do to the Lord. And now, of course, the government's not dumb. They take it out before you even get a chance to see it, of course. You recall when you got your first check, you go, man, I made this much and this is how much I'm taking home? Yeah, because the government knows they're gonna take it out right from the top. God's not like that. God's not like that. Churches shouldn't be like that. Our church isn't like that. Your giving is between you and the Lord. We're not going to take it out from the top. We're not going to make you bring your W-2 in. We're not going to search through all the records of whether you, we're going to trust that you will be faithful with all that God has given you so that you will have a generous heart toward the things of God because God will bless that. You know, God, he didn't institute tithing and giving as a way to raise money. You know that. He owns everything. So he's not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise kids, disciples, and teach you how not to cling to the things of the world. And if it starts with a dime, it starts with a dime. You know, when we're raising our kids, we taught them very early on. Everything they got as an increase, they needed to tithe unto the Lord. Everything. Even their gift cards during their birthdays. And, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? How am I gonna, you want me to cut a 10% off the gift card? No, bro. We're going to cash it out, man. And we're going to show you what it looks like. And we bought them those little plastic banks where on one side it had a little church, on another side it had a bank, and then I forget the other one, but you could use whatever you wanted with. So we taught them how to tithe unto the Lord to fulfill what the Bible teaches. We taught them how to save for a rainy day, teach them what the Bible teaches, and then the rest, I think it was a store, the rest they could do whatever they wanted with. And yeah, you know, if you got a gift of 10 bucks, it probably ended up being you had five bucks in your pocket, but that was five bucks you could give with a clean, you could use and spend with a clean conscience. And, and so here he is. These things were given to the house of the Lord and the king is stealing from God. If you like to write in your Bibles, just write next to verse eight. This guy's stealing from God. Literally. For what? To fulfill his own fears and manipulations. He's giving what belongs to God to the enemy. And isn't that a spiritual application? Whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's attention, church, how careful we need to be not to give to the devil what belongs to the Lord. Our purity, our focus, our families, all of that. We cannot give to the devil what belongs to the Lord. And he takes what belongs to God and uses it in a way in opposition against God which reminded me of another time we read of this happening, very graphically. Turn over to Haggai chapter one. Haggai chapter one. So you're gonna find Haggai in that section of the minor prophets. And if, even if you don't know where it is, you can go right to your table of contents, it's okay. You'll learn once, if you, if you have the anointed Bible, it's on page 1064. No, I'm just kidding. This is an old Bible. Haggai, it's right after, let's see, so those of you that memorize the books of the Bible, it's right after Zephaniah, and it's right before Zechariah. Notice chapter 1, verse 3. Haggai, 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you bring in little. You eat and you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. So it's not working for you, is it? Taking away from the work of the ministry. And he gets right to the point. Haggai was sent in a time when the time of Ezra and Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. So the time of Ezra. And he tells him, you won't build the temple, but you'll take care of your own houses. That's really what he's saying. You won't, you won't get involved in rebuilding the place of worship that has been in destruction for all this time, but you'll make sure your own house is taken care of. You'll panel up your houses. And, and there was a lot of opposition back then, but it wasn't just from the enemies. It was also from the flesh. Because paneled houses, and I don't want you to miss this in Haggai, the, the emphasis upon paneled houses is very significant because paneling refers to wood. And of course, <laughs> if you grew up in the 70s, you probably had wood paneling in your house somewhere. Biggest mistake on home decorating ever to be made besides shag carpet. Wood paneling, shag carpet. I remember growing up, a whole wall in our house had this wood paneling in it, and my mom loved it. That was just her deal. Great, mom. And so the paneling then speaks of wood. And I know you're like, of course, Ed, yeah, wood. But in Israel during this, in Israel today, wood is very scarce. Almost everything is made of stone. It's very plentiful, and it's relatively inexpensive, and wood is very expensive cutting down trees and replenishing and wood's very expensive. Now, in the time where the, the, the time of the siege, the trees were, all the resources were stripped from the land. And so wood was very scarce, very expensive. And so where would they get wood to panel their own houses? The wood that was dedicated and donated to fix the temple. See, they started off with a bang and this wood that was given to them, you'll recall, you Bible students, this wood was given as a gift from Lebanon, which was very plentiful, that was intended for the temple, could have very well, I believe, ended up in their houses instead of the temple. And we need to pause there and think for a moment. Do we use the things that belong to God for ourselves? Do we place our pursuits and our goals ahead of God's? Do we steal from God? And before we dismiss these questions like, no, never, ever, no way, just understand, anyone, any one of us can fall into apathy and indifference when it comes to the things of God, especially in times of excess, in times of comfort and ease, when there's really not a wrestling and a stretching. You know, I had a brother speak to me right before the service talking about how much he appreciates the times of prayer that we have here on Wednesday night. 
and I do too. I think it's just, man, we get to intercede. And, and I wonder what, you know, as we were thinking whether Jeff and the refugees or Bob and Kate, I wonder what they personally felt or praying, you know, what one of the things in my heart was praying for those junior hires. We're praying for kids that are going to go reach and minister to refugees. I wonder what God wants. They're going to go to serve, but I wonder how God's going to use those families to serve them. Kids! And that's our heart for our kids to have them engaged in the life of their church. This is their church. And have them step out in faith as they did even earlier this week or yesterday and the day before about see you at the pole praying and interceding. And kids at a young age, it's just glorious time. And I'm so grateful that there would be a sense of of interceding and that we'll lay aside all of our personal uh, difficulties and all of our personal preferences. And, you know, I don't like to pray out loud and I don't like to pray, hey, it's all right what you don't like. Let's just do it anyway. It's okay that you don't like it. Let's do something now in your life that you don't like. And so on the one hand, I got a brother right before, I mean, minutes before service started, just sharing how God has used this time of prayer in his life to not too long ago, a brother going, I can't stand, I'm not coming back to this church because you guys pray. All right. There's a lot of great churches in town. Find one that doesn't pray. Isn't that kind of sad? That doesn't make much sense. Find a church that doesn't pray. Well, I know that what he's not meaning doesn't pray at all, but doesn't pray intensely and focused and have to sit down with someone, a brother or sister, and just seek the Lord. I believe if just a few people came and prayed, heaven would pour out. God would pour out his blessings. We don't want to take what we believe is ours, our time, our personality, our, and, and say, well, that's how I'm going to relate to God. But we want to stay open to what God wants to do in our lives. And we certainly don't want to take what belongs to God and use it for ourselves in any way whatsoever. We don't want to take his time, his talents, his treasure. As we, as, as we have been taught, and I have the privilege of teaching you, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Jesus Christ is going to last. I mean, even the greatest accomplishments that we might have, the things that we want to attain, the, the, the things that we desire, those of you that have had lofty goals, and you've accomplished them, I mean, you want to get education, you want to get a degree, you want to get this career, you want to have this much money in the bank, whatever it is, all those lofty goals, and you've attained some, some of them, didn't they just leave you wanting a little more? They never fully satisfied. You're like, well, you know, if I just do this, then I'll be satisfied. When all the reality, satisfaction and rest and peace, remember we learned is all yours already by Jesus Christ, and all the attaining, all the things that God wants you to attain wants you to get to a level of education so he could put you in this job so you can reach these people or this amount of money so you know how to use it for your needs and then you give and you're like all of the things in the right context nothing wrong with education nothing wrong with any of the pursuits in this world it's just who are they for why are you doing it what's the purpose has God really told you to do that or in our context have you been bit by the American dream myth whatever the American dream is this week or last month. It's only what's done for the Lord. And you can look back and I can look back in my life, even as a believer and even as a pastor, the things that I have desired to attain and the things that I've wanted to be a part of. God would give me the opportunity and that he'd say, see Ed, I'm better than that. 
it wasn't the situation was bad. Maybe I wanted to teach in a certain place. So God said, go out here. I'm going to give you the invitation. Go teach. And I did. The Lord used me. And then you can hear heaven. Wasn't that great? It was great, Lord. Thank you so much. And aren't I better? Yes, Lord. You're better. You're better than any achievement. You're better than any title. You're better than any opportunity. Jesus, you're everything. It's all about our relationship with him. And you don't want to take something simple or profound like wood that is dedicated to build the temple. I mean, that would be like, when we were building this building, there would be brothers dropping off big old dry, you know, sheets of drywall. And that would be like us coming in, taking the drywall and building out our basement. <laughs> We're like, how could you ever enjoy the basement was built out with the drywall you ripped off from the church? And we had all kinds of things ripped off here during that time. You know, how could you possibly enjoy that? But it reminds me, you know, when, when we opened the bookstore and when the bookstore, you know, when they did surveys of bookstore, you know the number one thing stolen from a Christian bookstore? Bibles. That would be really hard to read the Bible that you ripped off. I mean, God could still use it and bring great conviction to your heart, but... Like, if you're here and you want to steal a Bible, don't. Just take one from the chair. Those are free. You won't be stealing anything. We give Bibles away all the time, so you don't need to. You can, we'll give it to you as a gift. Please, don't be like King Ahaz, the wickedest king to date, stealing from the temple to pay a pagan king that's going to take advantage of him anyway for temporary relief. That's the point. Don't steal what belongs to God, church. Verse 10. Now, this is back in 2 Kings, come back. <clears throat> Verse 10 of chapter 16. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And the king Ahaz sent Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came to Damas from Damascus. And, verse 12, when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering and he sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. There's a big problem with this altar. You know that, right? God prescribed how the altars were to be built. Not the king in Damascus. And so, verse 14, he also brought the bronze altar that was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. And then King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, Sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Urijah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts, removed the labors from them. He took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on the pavement of stones. And he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. And the rest of the acts of Ahaz 
which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. It's too bad that uh, the priest didn't tell him, are you crazy? I'm not doing that. I'm a priest under the most high God. But even spiritual leaders can be bought by and find themselves bribed by other people and leaders. And this is a good example of, you know, a mixture of the priest who should be representing as we see, as we're learning in Hebrews, he should be representing the people before the Lord, but instead he's representing his own interests. And so Ahaz sees this altar of false worship, and now he wants one of his own, so he has it built. He's already rejected the one true God, stolen from him, and now will continue false worship as modeled by evil, even sacrificing his own kids. Sacrificing his own kids. Uriah the priest builds it, has it in the courtyard, gives it a prominent place in the courtyard, and it's just a sad arrangement of things. And it's to me, as we head out today, it's a reminder for us now in this time of the new covenant, uh, the grace of God, that we in the church of Jesus Christ shouldn't follow this similar path. And the path is simply this. The church is very often tempted with the flirtations of the world, and the popularity of the world, and attention of people. And it's the leaders that make that decision, where a leader may become dissatisfied or discontented in the place they are. And instead of seeking God and asking God for wisdom, as they have previously, is what they got them to this place in the first place, the fact that they were in ministries because they heard from the Lord, they get to a place of discontentment, or even jealousy, or envy, and they begin to do things in their own way, the way the world does things. So that instead of the church turning the world upside down, the world has a tendency of turning the church upside down and flipping it on its head, in, all in the name of relevance, all in the name of staying connected and staying in a place where we're relevant. This, in any of the churches, any of the church's attempt to try, to try to stay relevant with the way the world does things, I don't know about you, but it always comes off as a cheap imitation. And, and it, it comes off in such a way that just really doesn't reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God. Now, you know as well as I do that as time changes, the methodologies that we use to reach the lost are going to change. But see, the integrity of the ministry cannot change. The integrity of the presence of God cannot change. And we cannot replace the power and presence of the Holy Spirit with a bunch of junk that we learned in the world. It just isn't going to work. It's not going to be blessed by God. The church is not going to be popular in this world. Now, we talk about the church, but who's the church? It's you and me. Like, if you take a stand today and say, I will not have sex before marriage, you will not be popular, especially with the person that wants to have sex with you. You will not be popular. I will not compromise my faith. I want you not to be in my life because you are a person that is pulling me away from God. You need to get your life right with the Lord and I cannot be with you. You will not be popular. And because of that, you don't say that. Or you take a stand for righteousness in love. In love. It's, you don't have to be offensive. It's just your, your decisions based upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That's offensive to this world. And you won't be popular. And you won't, you won't be accepted. 
As a matter of fact, you'll be mocked and made fun of. You might be spat upon and you might lose your job. You might lose your status. You might lose, who knows what you're going to lose for the cause of Christ. But isn't it true, whatever we've lost for Jesus is truly been gained by the blood that has forgiven us of all of our sins. We're not bondage anymore. But whether it's you individually or it's a church, what happens when a church begins to look like the world, sound like the world, and behave like the world? Well, the church gets upside down and loses its voice and loses its ability to speak the truth in a dark world. Now, the salt isn't salty anymore and the light of the gospel has been turned out. Why? Because somewhere along the way, the world's influence was a greater motive. You go to Damascus and you see the altar and you go, that's a much cooler altar than when the one God told me to build. I want one of those. And that's the key, isn't it? You see something, you desire something, and you want it. Does that sound familiar to you? It's the same exact temptation that was given to Eve in the garden. It's the same thing over and over again. And the reality of a lost and dying world is that we need to be men and women that not only preach the gospel, but live the gospel. It needs to be lived in our lives. It needs to be communicated through the uniqueness of who we are. <laughs> if you were listening to the show again today, uh, I got a text uh, and I read it before I read the whole thing because at the end it says, you don't have to read this on the air. So I already read it. And I'm like, oh man. But it was, it was something along the lines that said, I'm a police officer. And I pulled a guy over involved in some drug thing and he was listening to Grace FM while he was being arrested. All right, so praise God that the word of God was going to this guy as he's going to jail. But maybe next time the word of God would prevent him from being inside a drug deal because he's going to take a stand for righteousness than to cave into his cravings or whatever he was doing with drugs. And praise God for that police officer doing what he needed to do, for Grace FM doing what he needed to do. And now what do we do? We just sow the seeds and allow God to do what he wants to do in a person's life. We can't be like the world. That doesn't mean we can't be celebratory as a church. We can't be excited as a church. That we can't have fun. Of course we can. Why, would it, why does that, that, you know, you think, well, wait a minute, Ed. What if we have a little bit louder music? We've got lights hanging in. Well, wait a minute. What about, it starts to sound, this, no, no, no. You missed the whole point if that's your conclusion. Because the world has a way of doing things. The world has a system of doing things. And it's counterintuitive than the way of the Lord. It's counter, I, I would say the way of the Lord is counterintuitive to the way the world does things, abandon God completely. And you don't want to see an altar that's in Damascus. They go, I think I want to worship that way. And I want to rearrange everything with God. And I want to do it my way. I'm a bit concerned that in many corners of the world today, Christians are not turning the world upside down anymore. Perhaps that's just a word of the Lord for you. That God really wants you. Your call in life is to have the reputation that, that you, when you come in, when your life is interacting with other lives, that lives are changed. That's really the phrase, turning the world upside down. It's just the changed life. It's the born again experience. 
that you're not so worried about what people think, but you look to the Lord. You're not crying out to man, say, come and save me, but you're calling out to the Lord. It's hard right now, God, but you're my savior. You're my only defender. You're the one that's going to, I'm not going to go the route of the world and hire somebody to fight for me and take care of this. And I'm going to trust you because here's the pathway. If you start to dabble in the things of this world in the system of this world in the flirtations of this system, eventually the way it's going to end is you will abandon God's word. They can't happen at the same time. I was just reading today, Jesus told me, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. So anything that represents being in bondage in your life has got to go. How? By surrendering to God. He's your strength, moment by moment, day by day. You can't serve two masters. It's impossible. Jesus put it this way. You can't do it because either you'll love one and hate the other or you'll hate one and love the other. You can't have it both ways. As some churches have left the word of God, they've chased after depravity. As the world sells self as the highest priority, so has gone the church. Many lacks attitudes toward sexuality, toward marriage, toward divorce, toward friendships, have shifted the church in their mission, unfortunately, where these things have become more important than the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This whole mega church model is imploding upon itself. Because the church wasn't intended to be built on the systems of man, on the conferences of man, on how to run the church as a business. The church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. And is there a business side? Of course there is, because even Jesus had someone that took care of the money. That's not the issue. But when the leadership is only doing things according to the way the world runs corporations, no. Resist it, steadfast in the faith. Where ministry is replaced by entertainment, where the world is catered to, it has failed miserably. And this isn't a meant, you know, the idea of a megachurch isn't the size. That's not the issue. The very beginning of the church started with 3,000 being saved. That's not the issue. The issue is the leadership. God's going to do in his church whatever he wants to do in his church. If he wants five people in his church, that's a good church because that's God's will. If he wants 10,000 people in a church, that's a good church. That's God's will. We're not to mess with that. We're to be faithful, loving, serving, and caring. We're to do endeavor in our lives to make the congregation that we're a part of, not just pastors, but all of us, the best loved and best cared for sheep in all the city. Not in competition with anyone, just being faithful with what the Lord's doing in our lives. Because the model of church, as Jesus indicated, is not a miserable failure. Because we're still going today, aren't we? There's still the church and the witness of the church on the earth today. And we are in need of God's word in real community. Not the size of the church, but the leadership and the direction. There's so much emphasis on the size of the church. It's not the size of the church. It's the size of our hearts and the capacity that we have to be overflowing with the love of God so that we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. And you're right if you're feeling this today. Ed, I can't do everything. You're right. God never asked you to do everything. Just do what God has asked you to do because God has led you to do something and collectively in the body of Christ, as Paul said, 
collectively in the body of Christ. We all fit together like a beautiful body and God uses us in incredible ways. As the world is plunging into darkness and depravity, may the church shine the light of the gospel in a real bona fide way. And God, God help us to look to you and not to man. Amen? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and where we have erred as a church, Lord, as we, where we have made mistakes, please forgive us. Forgive us for the opportunities lost. Forgive us for the fleshly mistakes. Forgive us for seeing this as a vocation instead of a calling. Forgive us for seeking after knowledge instead of love. Forgive us in all the areas of our life, Lord. We cast ourselves upon your mercy and we ask for your mercy today. That we are nothing but by the grace of God. And may we find ourselves leaving here today encouraged and strengthened to shine the light of the gospel. May you double the amount of people that come to pray every Wednesday night, God. May you pour out a special anointing of your spirit on Calvary Chapel, that we would be men and women of prayer, that like you said, Jesus, that your house is to be a house of prayer and that we would press in through our prayer time, that this would be just a taste as the kids are praying upstairs, as they're praying downstairs, as we're praying as a church, as our home fellowships and our smaller groups, like, like would we just be prayer? We would just be prayerful. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. And, and we don't want to be all arrogant either, like, oh, we, we pray, so we're something different. We're not. We're just humble. We're just broken, humble people. What, what more can we do but cry out to you? And I pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in abundance upon us today, that you would have your way among us, and that we would find ourselves in a better place of submission and obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.